Thank you for coming back. It's, it's great to be back for this uh, first, first, no, it's our inaugural, it's probably the best way to say it, inaugural Summer Equipping Conference, and we are looking forward to doing this again. Welcome. A um, few people in the back, still out there in the, uh, in the hallway, will be in. We'll take our time. And I think all of you guys probably already filled out a little card for drawing. That was fun last night to, uh, to see that occur. Um, for those who weren't here, uh, we have a drawing uh, for another book, which is... Proverbs for Parenting, and it's just a great book. Um, I know Kathy and I used it. This is not our copy. There'd be blood, sweat, and tears all over it for all the work that we used with the thing, but very, very helpful. It's going to um, complement what Steve's going to be preaching on in a little bit. So uh, make sure you fill in that card, and we'd be glad to have, uh, uh, have one of you guys be the ones that gets to have that free of charge. Um, and the children should be well taken care of. I, it sounds like they have a fun program set, so if you brought your children, that's uh, going to be a good time for them. Um, we're going to have a first session. Steve's going to be speaking, and then we're going to take a little break again. There are snacks out there, some drinks, so um, if you get tired of him talking, just go out and have fellowship time out there because I don't think they're going to pull those in. No, don't do that. Um, just to let you know, also, we already have plans in the work for next year's uh, conference. We're already thinking that direction and uh, already talking to a, a dynamic speaker who uh, may be able to make it, so uh, we're going to keep that under the hat till we can get that figured out. But that's we want to see this happening. We want to have this church be known as one that wants to do those kinds of things, to equip the neighborhood, and we're hoping to get more of the neighborhood in here this year, but uh, that's okay. God has the right people here. So let's take a few moments to, uh, to sing to the Lord, raising our joyous voices to serve a risen Savior and uh, to rejoice in uh, what we have uh, for just a moment here. You know that uh, sometimes the way I work, I'm very regimented. I like to do things boom, 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 and, and not waste time, and maybe that's why I talk so fast. But uh, as a process of that, it's good to stop, to take time like that, just to, to sing, to worship God, to remember what we're here for. It's not just a filler time to, to make our time last longer. Um, time like that of, of uh, taking God's word in, in through the words of music and using it to glorify him, that's what it's about here. Well, if you have your syllabus with you, we're going to be on page eight here, uh, session number two, Parenting Through the Proverbs. And uh, Steve, uh, as he said last night, he has a, a passion for this as well. He uh, really wants to affect lives, first his own, and, and really the proof of the pudding with parenting is in your kids and, and how your kids end up and, and the ways that they choose in life. And uh, to watch his kids have been a real joy. Steve, we, we thank you. And I know when we chose you as a pastor, that's one thing we looked at. Say, you know, where, where are his kids at? Are they following after Christ? Are they, do they have a yearning for that, even at a younger age? And uh, it was a joy to watch that. So what you're going to hear is not just the word of God, but also lived out through a life that, that I've been able to observe for the Seven months we've known each other is all. It seems like it's been years. But uh, Steve, thank you for sharing your word with us. Um, he's been a pastor for years. He knows what he's talking about here. Uh, he also worked, as I recall, as a, a child uh, caseworker uh, in charge of a whole organization for adoption and, and other things like that. So he had a, a bivocational uh, background where he has experience in a lot of parenting applications, and that's going to shine through with what you hear. I'm sure it's going to be part of his heart. So for those of you who are in the back, if you just come up and make it more of a family here or, or maybe off to the side, we're, we're going to try and keep the heat close together so we don't use the air conditioning. No, just kidding. Just to be together. And uh, thank you guys for being here. Steve, come up and bring us the word. Just by way of advertisement, uh, Sunday morning, we're going to finish this off by uh, looking specifically at moms and dads. 
and what Scripture says about that. And uh, I just made a decision recently. I thought, you know, what a, what a wonderful opportunity for us uh, to just continue focusing on the family, not to coin a phrase. Um, so we're going to uh, look at moms and dads on Sunday, but I think we'll just continue. We'll take a, we'll take a little break from the Gospel of Mark, and let's just uh, keep looking at the family in Scripture. So we're going to look at uh, wives, and we'll look at husbands for the next couple of weeks after that. And it's something I'll probably do once a year, maybe, maybe once every couple of years, because um, s- strong churches are made of strong families, and so if we have a strengthened family in the church, we have strong marriages, we have men who know how to be men, women who know how to be women, and children who know that they need to surrender because we have godly adults who are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, then you have a strong church. When you have a church where families are having difficulties, the church will uh, come apart, and particularly at the leadership level. If you have leaders who don't uh, manage their families in a godly way, the rest of the church will suffer as a result of that. And so um, I think we'll just continue with that for a while. We'll uh, get back to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark for a couple more years, so a break here and there doesn't hurt us any um, at all. Well, I'm calling this Parenting Through Proverbs, but I'm going to use a lot of other scripture as well. And we want to make this just as practical as we possibly can, and we'll start with the theory and get on to the, uh, to the practice and get very, very practical with some issues here. But I want to start with Proverbs chapter 2, and I'm, you can turn there if you want, but I know you're taking notes this morning, so however you want to do that, a little different than Sunday morning church. Proverbs chapter 2 gives us what is really the goal of raising children. What is the goal? If you don't understand the goal, then you don't understand what you're doing. You don't have a reason. Proverbs 2, the first four verses, listen to this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures... Now, this is a classic dad move. What he's doing here is he's saying, I have something. I have a treasure. What's in my hand? And little kids go, oh, is it money? Is it silver? Is it gold? And the kid keeps asking. And the dad says, ask me what I have. Ask me what the treasure is. Is it silver? Is it money? Is it something wonderful? Well, this says it's better than hidden treasure. And so the idea here is you see a little kid saying, Dad, what is it? Please, please tell me what is this wonderful thing that you have? And what is in the dad's hand, he might say, is the greatest thing I can impart to you, which is the goal of me being a dad, the goal of being a mom, the goal of a parent. Verse 5 is the treasure. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's the treasure. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to impart to our children. Not to make little, well-behaved children who grow up and look really religious, spend 60 years in church, die, stand before God, and go to hell because they were Pharisees their entire life. We're trying to make children with changed hearts. Now, ultimately, you cannot change a child's heart. You can't do it. And we'll talk about that a lot. What you can do, though, is plow that soil into really, really fine dust. And in fact, elsewhere in Proverbs, it says to discipline your son so that you will save his soul from death. 
You don't save your children through your parenting. You can't set them up, as it were, to be saved. But there is a sense in which Scripture tells us that your parenting, your setting up children, as it were, toward the gospel is somehow part of God's sovereign plan to save them. And you might say, well, wait a minute, that, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't take into account election and God's choice and all that. I think it does. And I'll tell you why. Just think very practically here for a moment. Take 100 Christian families attempting to raise their children in the admonition of the Lord. Take 100 completely worldly, godless, atheistic families attempting to raise their children in their own ways, in worldly philosophies. Honestly, which group of 100 do you think are going to produce more believers as children? It's going to be the group of Christians because they're praying for their kids. They're raising their kids in the admonition of the Lord. And the Lord has ordained to use that to draw some of them to Christ and hopefully all of them. And so how does that work together? Scripture doesn't really explain that. But we are told to be parents who raise our children to know the Lord as far as we are able to. And we don't do that because we are able to bring them to Christ. We do that because it's a command from God, and we do it to, uh, to please the Lord, whether the outcome is everything that we want it to be or not. So there's the single goal of parenting. If anyone asks you, what is the goal of your family? What's the mission? What's the reason? What's the purpose for your family? I think you ought to have the answer very clearly that you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That is our goal. That is what we do. So a good question to ask yourself as a parent as you're looking at your family, all the time demands, all the, all the opportunities there are in the world to do things. You know, today, uh, kids can go to you know, tap dance lessons on Monday morning and football practice on Tuesday evening, and there's just way many, uh, too many things to do. And so every decision you make for your family, here's the question you ask. For everything you do for your kids, for your family, how does this contribute to the goal of the knowledge of God? How does this contribute? And if you don't have a good answer for that question, then it's probably not a wise thing to do. Because honestly, I don't care if my kids are great athletes. I don't care if they're great scholars. I don't care if they make a lot of money. I don't care if they're successful in the eyes of the world. I don't care if they're handsome. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is, do they know the Lord? And am I pointing them in that direction? And here's why. Good verse for us to remember from Proverbs and is Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Your children were cute at birth. And if you want to stay that they're cute, well, it's not all are cute. Some of them are really ugly, but I wouldn't say that to your face. But they're sinners. They're born thinking about three people, me, myself, and I. And that's it. If you uh, have bought into the worldly philosophy that people are basically good, here's a little experiment to do. Take two 18-month-olds, Place them in a room with nothing in it except one cupcake. Put it in the middle, hold them in the corner, and then say, go. Is one of them going to rush to the cupcake and say, oh, please, after you, you know, let's split it down the middle. Please, take the bigger half. No, he's going to grab, punch, kick, do everything he can to get the cupcake because they're basically wicked little sinners. And you have to understand that. If you go at parenting thinking that they're, they're cute, they're basically good, you're going to raise basically hypocritical people. 
And that's the way it'll work. So the one thing I care about the most is that they repent of their sin, they know Christ, they become like Christ, and they lead others to do the same. Being a mom and dad is being a disciple maker at its core. It is being a disciple maker. You know, I've taught evangelism classes. I've done evangelism Bible studies, things like that. And very often, uh, the complaint and the disappointment I get is from moms, stay-at-home moms. They'll say, I, I can't go out on the street and evangelize. I can't go to the bus stop. I've got diapers to change. And I always want to encourage moms, you, you have little disciples right in your home. Lead them to Christ. Lead them to Christ and then stand before God saying, I led these three to you. And what a reward you'll receive. Everyone is an evangelist, moms and dads, in different ways. So everything we do as parents is geared toward that end. It is geared toward then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So understanding that goal, how do we raise children in a way that pleases the Lord and is obedient to Scripture? Now, I want to be, I, I'm going to come back to this a few times. On the one hand, we do want to be very clear that we, we are not just going for external behavior. We're not just going for behavior modification, okay? We are going for changed hearts. We are going for internal attitudes that reflect Scripture, reflect God's will. However, it is God's will, according to Scripture, to change their behavior. That is his will. And whether the child changes his inward attitude or not, you are still fulfilling God's will by controlling those children. Uh, for example, you can't be an elder in the church if you don't have your own children under control. It doesn't say with wonderful, godly, internal attitudes. It just means they're not running around being little maniacs that they are clearly under your authority and you're able to manage them. And so we raise kids, first and foremost, to please the Lord. Um, our goal is to please the Lord and to introduce them to him. I just want to start with uh, three, and there's many, many more we could do, but three cultural myths about parenting. If you turn on the TV, watch the Internet, anything about parenting, ask this question of yourself. Does this guy or gal who's giving advice know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and submit to the authority of Scripture? And if the answer is no, what they had to say is bogus. It doesn't make sense, and it is completely child-centered. I enjoy watching that just simply because it's, it's entertaining to see the s silly theories that people come up with. But let me give you three myths that we want to start to get away from. The first one is that the goal of parenting is to make my children successful in worldly terms. That the goal of parenting is to make my children successful. That, that is a myth. And if you compare this to Galatians 2.20, what a saved person is like, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The goal of parenting is not to make my children successful. It's to make them crucified in Christ. That is the goal. If they happen to be successful in worldly terms, that's fine. It'll make me be able to retire in Florida instead of down the street at the, at the local uh, apartment house. But that's not the goal. Second myth, that the goal of parenting is to impart self-esteem to my children. To impart self-esteem to my children. This has been one of the uh, craziest things that has infiltrated not only the world, but sadly, the church that somehow we're supposed to make our kids feel really, really good about themselves. Could I tell you what the Bible says about your children? Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. They have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Now, don't take your four-year-old aside and say, you are worthless. Bible says so. We're not here to do that. But at the same time, the, the world's ideas, um, and I've been in the world of psychology, I've been in the world of professional counseling, I've been immersed in that, and their ideas are ludicrous. Stand in front of a mirror and tell yourself three times every day, you're a wonderful person, you're a wonderful person, you're a wonderful person. Um, I actually uh, spent time with a pastor a number of years ago who has bought into all of that. He says he believes scripture. And so he was telling me this wonderful work he was doing with a, with a teenage girl and how he was really, really boosting her self-esteem. And he told me all these wonderful strategies to make her basically worship herself. And so I just, I had my Bible with me and I opened to Romans 3 and I read this to him and I, I said, how do, you, how do you then share the gospel with her? Because for her to come to Christ, she has to understand that she has nothing good to offer God. How do you do that? And he didn't have an answer. His answer finally was, well, once she believes she's good enough, then she'll feel she can come to God. That's pharisaicalism. That is Catholicism. That's works-based salvation. And I told him, I said, are you a heretic or are you just misinformed? And I came to the conclusion that maybe he didn't know Christ himself because he didn't understand the gospel. Uh, The third cultural myth, and this is one you hear all the time, especially with teenagers, hey, rebellion is normal and it should be tolerated. Just, just kind of get through it. That was, um, you know, God loved James Dobson and focused on the family, but James Dobson's uh, philosophy was when your teenagers start rebelling, just, just grit your teeth and just get through it. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. In fact, you know what Scripture says about a rebellious teen? In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, you shall bring him to the elders of the city... And the parents say, this, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. There is no record in Scripture of a death sentence ever being carried out against a teenager. But undoubtedly it happened. And can you imagine? Because in Israel, when the death sentence was carried out, the whole nation came and watched. And can you imagine a 17-year-old young man being stoned to death, and all the other 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds watching, and their parents say, go clean your room. Yes, sir. It's serious stuff. Rebellion is not normal. It is abnormal. It is a sign of the sinfulness of that child, and you don't just put up with it. You don't get through it. You confront it with the gospel. And you tell them, you can rebel, but all, you, you don't like my rules? Wait till you hear God's. Gods are way stricter and way lengthier, like eternity in hell. So obey me and show me that you are beginning to have a soft heart. Well, these are sort of the philosophies that are man-centered, they're humanistic, and they make their way into our families. Um, Could I just take a side note and exhort all of us to be really, really careful about what you let into your family, what you let into your own mind as far as how you parent your kids, how you do your marriage. The world has nothing to say to you as a Christian. Let me repeat that. The world has nothing to say to you as a Christian. Let's say it all together. The world has nothing to say to you as a Christian. Nothing. 1 Corinthians 2 is very clear that the truth of God is idiocy to the world. They don't get it. They don't understand it. That's why when you're trying to have a discussion about Scripture with an unbeliever, you you see this glazed over look. What? I, I don't understand this. Of course they don't. They don't have the Spirit of God to understand. So the goal is to raise children who honor and worship God. 
And we want to start getting a little bit more uh, practical, a little bit less theoretical. So overall, let me give you a way you think about being a parent. The way I think about it is I mean, you might picture an inverted triangle, upside down, upside down triangle with the bottom, the point at the bottom and the big part at the top. At the bottom, represented by the point, is the child having 0% self-control and 0% spirit control. So if they have 0% self-control, 0% spirit control, who gets all the control? The parent has 100% control, as it should be. When a child comes out of the womb, they can't control anything. They are as helpless as what? As a baby, right? They can't even control when they use the bathroom. And they just do it whenever, you know? Some men still do that too, but... Um, They just do whatever. They have no control. What is your goal? Your goal is to work your way to the top of that triangle where it's inverted, where now they have 100% spirit control and self-control and 0% parent control. And I like to tell kids, especially when they get to the 7, 8, 9, 10, and especially in the teenage years, I'll draw this triangle and I'll say, um, right now, because you're acting like a little heathen, We're down here near the bottom of this. I'm having to have almost complete control over your life. I'm giving you the four things that you must have. You must have food, water, shelter, and a bathroom. Those are the four things I have to give you. But boy, I could give you so much more. I could give you freedom. I could give you trust. I could give you um, the ability to make more decisions if you would be wiser. And we could move our way up this triangle. Wouldn't you like to get to the 100% self-control? You know what the essence of rebellion is? The essence of rebellion in a child is a desire to shoot up to the top of that triangle right now. I want all the control. Well, they may think they want all the control, but they don't have the spirit's control, certainly don't have self-control. Self-control and teenager don't go together. That's why we have parents. So that's your goal is to move them up that ladder, up the triangle to 100% self-control and spirit control. If you go too slow in that, the child won't develop and you'll end up with what we affectionately refer to as a mama's boy, somebody who is overly dependent. If you go too fast, which is the bigger mistake, giving too much control too fast, um, then you'll end up with uh, difficult kids who can't make good decisions. Understanding that triangle is pretty important because one of the biggest mistakes that parents make with little kids, and I'm going to spend most of my time this morning on the smaller children, One of the biggest mistakes we make is trying to reason with small children. Why is that a problem? Because small children, by definition, are unreasonable. They barely have brains. I mean, when they come out of the womb, they can do a couple of things. They can eat, and they can go to the bathroom, and they can cry when they need to do one or the other. And that's about it. They are unreasonable. And I've seen... um, I've spent hours and hours with parents and I'll do literal training with them. What I'll do is I'll get like a bucket of Legos and I'll dump it out on the floor and I'll tell the mom, okay, make your kid pick it up. Let's see how you do this. And so with an 18-month-old, the mom says, now, son, this nice man here has made a big mess. And so I need you to go be... And the kid's already wandering off and he's licking the door and he's... And so she brings him back and she says... That behavior is unacceptable. And I said, okay, mom, time out. He's 18 months old. What does unacceptable mean? Most adults don't know what that means. 
And so we don't reason with small children. They don't have the capability to reason. And in fact, you'll frustrate them because you're just using big words. Um, if the kid's name is Joey, here's what he hears. Joey. And then Joey. And that's all they hear. And so you can't reason with them. So what we want to do this morning is get to some basics. It's not comprehensive. I wish we had hours and hours. But just a starting point. Uh, some from Proverbs and some from other places in Scripture. I don't want to take the time for you to turn to Scripture, just listen because we have a lot to cover. But what I want to do is give you six ways to strive to be a God-honoring parent, to raise children in a way that honors the Lord. And we'll move pretty quickly through five because the last one is the one that we're all interested in, and that is uh, what Scripture says about disciplining children. So the first way is prayer. First way is prayer. When Jesus was getting ready to choose his 12 apostles, it says in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now, Jesus is God. He knew from eternity past whom he was going to choose. He knew these men. He understood. In fact, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. That was already taken care of. People have said, I've heard it preached, well, Jesus had to go out to pray about who he was going to choose. No, he didn't. He's sovereign God. He knew who he was going to choose. What did he do, though? He prayed for these men, and he prayed for them, his spiritual children. He, He lifted them up in prayer. He loved them so much before he had chosen them that he spent all night neglecting his own sleep so he could pray for them. And that's key for us as a parent, to keep in mind that your prayers for your children, that's your top priority. When you uh, are praying for your kids, how long should you do this? I've been praying for my children since I was 15 years old. Before I had a wife, before I had kids, my last day on this earth that is conscious, I will be praying for my children. That is part of your life as a parent forever. And then you add your grandchildren to it. You add your great-grandchildren. I'm praying for my grandchildren now. I'm praying for every generation. I've asked the Lord for a ridiculous thing. I've asked the Lord that nobody that comes from me and Sylvia would ever go to hell. I know that's silly to ask that, but I'm going to ask because we have a big God. You base your parenting in prayer, and trust me, you're going to need it. And it's not just your kid is breaking everything and you go, God, help me not to kill him. Those prayers are good too, but it's, it's your time in prayer for their salvation, for their sanctification. Pray for them to be like Christ. Pray for their future spouses. Pray for their children. And lift them up, and there should be a sense of desperation because your children are born with a one-way ticket to hell. There should be a desperation. Once you are certain of your kid's salvation, there is a sense of relief, but then you continue praying for, for their sanctification, for their Christ-likeness. So the first way is prayer. The second way we honor God uh, by raising our children is by giving limits. By giving limits. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I, um, we forbade our children from using the word stupid when they were little, and then one of them pointed out, well, Daddy, it's in the Bible. I'm like, well, okay. If you're quoting that verse, you can use it. So that was the rule we gave them. The idea of discipline is not a negative idea. 
discipline is not a bad thing. It's the idea of learning to walk with righteous limits. Um, I've noticed that the streets in Bakersfield are like the, as wide as a football field. And some of them are not marked with lanes. And this morning, on the way here, I get behind a precious lady who is about 106. And she wanted to turn right. And so I was behind her. She started to turn. But then she decided to turn left. And so what she ended up doing was just weaving back and forth across the road. And so I just turned on the radio and said, well, we'll get to church a little late this morning because she was scaring me to death. What she needed was lanes, right? Lanes are good. They, they, they mark off where we should go. If you're one who likes to drive on the freeway at exceptional rates of speed, the thing that keeps you from killing yourself and others is those little white stripes. They're limits. It's discipline. There is... Um, a faulty notion out there that it's somehow very good for children to give them lots and lots of choices. It's not. For little kids in particular, you're creating little monsters who think that they should have everything they're worried. They, they won't respect authority and they'll become self-centered. How do you give them choices? You start off with limits and with wisdom, as they show more wisdom, you give them more and more choices. It's very simple. You walk into an ice cream parlor with your kid. If he's little... You don't say, look at the menu and tell me what you want. You don't say that. With a little one, you say, do you want chocolate or vanilla? Which one? You give them a choice. Well, I want that. No, it's not the choice I gave you. You want chocolate or vanilla. And when they've demonstrated the ability to say, Father, may I consider a third choice? Okay, what is the third choice you would like to... When they start showing wisdom and submitting to your direction, then you begin expanding those choices. And when they get old enough to make wise choices, then you decrease the limits. When do you start setting limits as a parent? How about this one? The moment they get home from the hospital. How do you do that? What? They can't do anything. They, they don't understand me. They, you just said they're unreasonable. Well, you can decide when they sleep, right? You can decide when they eat, you can make those decisions. Um, Sylvia had our kids on a very tight schedule within a week of birth for all of them. Just deciding, okay, we know for a fact that he needs to eat every three hours. Well, our oldest son needed to eat every 20 minutes, but we figured out that was his normal schedule. He needs to eat every three hours. He's crying, and so we would go through the checklist. No, we're not going to feed him quite yet. And people say, what? You're cruel. You're an abusive parent. No, we're putting him on our schedule. And eventually, very quickly, they learned. Um, what's the classic problem that parents with new babies have? Crying in the crib at night, right? You know, when the child is nine months old, oh, we're still having these sleepless nights. Sometimes that's because of the child. Most of the time it's because of the parent. Why? You got the baby monitor on. You hear the little, Rah! and what do you do? You jump up and you run to the baby and rescue immediately. Well, what did that baby just learn? Wow, this is great. All I have to do is go, and mom comes running. What do you do? You begin to slowly train that child, even from infancy. When they're a little bitty, you have compassion and mercy. You let them cry for a moment, and then you help them. But slowly, you extend that time out, because you're the one setting the limits, not them. And they need to know that from the outset. And it's, uh, we, we enjoyed night's sleep when our friends were still uh, up late uh, because uh, their, their children were just running their house. Uh, I'll give you an example. Even when they're very little, you can decide what they touch and what they don't touch 
How do you decide that? You train them to respond to the word no every single time. And you train them through physical discipline, which we'll talk about in a minute. You can't reason with a seven-month-old who's, who is crawling around and wants to stick a dime in the, uh, in the power socket. We have an unnamed child who did that. But you can teach them to instantly respond to no. Um, you ever heard the saying that you should baby-proof your house? You know, get, get everything up, and, and, and there's some wisdom to that. I don't want my kids, you know, drinking the Windex you know, and, and that sort of thing. But how about this? How about house-proof your baby? Make them learn that no means stop right now, and you can train them. I have seen six-month-old children crawling around who can respond to no immediately. They start to reach for something. Is that what kids do? No, and they do that. Why? Because 600 times before, mom and dad disciplined them instantly when they reached for the wrong thing. They can learn. Uh, You set limits by not letting children be wild, except when it's appropriate for them to do so. Um, You teach them to respect adults and to be polite. Um, You insist on it. Discipline discipline them if they're not. Um, Wild children and children with no limits is discourteous. It's unthoughtful toward others, toward um, in the church, for example. Uh, We have all ages, and so you don't let little kids just run all over the place. Um, You make them promises. You tell them you can run all over the place, but not now, not at this moment. And you teach them to sit and be quiet, and they can do that. I always laugh when I see parents where there's a dad who's 6'2 and 220, and mom who's still you know a reasonable size, and they can't make their little bitty kids physically be where they want them to be. And let me illustrate something for you, okay? And I have to walk away from the microphone for a minute, so I'm just going to talk loud, all right? So let's say that you have a kid who is here, and you want your kid to be over here. A little. What do you do? You say, kid of mine, you're here. I want you to go over there. And he says, no. Or he ignores you. What do you do? He's two feet tall. He weighs 10 pounds. You pick him up, and you put him there. And he has it like that, and you pick him up and take him back and say, let's try this again. Kid of mine, I want you God made you to weigh 200 pounds, and he made your kid little tiny. You know, if they were born 6'4", that's different. I always say about our oldest son, I don't give him orders anymore. I make suggestions because he's bigger than I am. You hold hands with them. You teach them to be with you. We have a specific hand-holding method for all of our kids when they're little bitty. Uh, I call it the double whammy, and that is that they hold my finger and I hold their hand. Because they're obeying me, but they can't run across the street. They can't do anything. Even now, just watch me with Julia sometime. I'll stick my hand out, boop, and she's got my finger. And I'm telling her now, you're eight. You know, I know you're not going to run across the street. It's probably going to be okay, but it's just habit um, since they were little. You set limits for them, and you insist on them. Here's a third way you raise kids in a God-honoring way, and that's with understanding. Understanding. Ephesians 6.4 says fathers and by implication parents because the word for fathers patera is used sometimes for parents fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord how do you provoke children well uh, you can provoke them with unrealistic expectations 
Um, not understanding, you need to know some basics about child development. That's why you don't try to reason with an 18-month-old. They don't understand reasoning. You can provoke them by being angry all the time. You know what happens if you don't have a good discipline plan? You end up just getting mad and venting your emotion on your kids. And I would call that kind of emotionally abusive to children. Uh, You can provoke them by not giving them any trust or opportunity to expand their horizons, that you keep them at the bottom of that triangle, 0%. You know, Mom, please, can I I decide what I'm going to wear today? No, you need to demonstrate wisdom. Mom, I'm 19. Please, could I demonstrate? You frustrate them by keeping them at the bottom of that triangle. Give them hope. Tell them you want them at the top. You want them making wise choices. Demonstrate that they can do it. You can provoke children by never thanking them. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. You know, you go to work. You get a paycheck, and that's fine. But doesn't it make things a little nicer on occasion when somebody says thanks for what you do? And yet with children, we think we're spoiling them by doing that. Thank them. Thank them for their behavior. When they, when they obey you, say thank you. Be polite. You can provoke children by treating them as less than human. And I, I, really, I really am saddened when I see parents wildly disciplining their children in front of a bunch of people. I never spank my kids in front of anybody else because it humiliates them. Um, when I discipline my kids, and now as teenagers, when I have to give them a good nose-to-nose talking to, I don't do it in front of anybody else. How do you like it when somebody chastises you in front of a crowd? You feel humiliated and you get angry. Children are the same way. You don't need to discipline them in front of others. Treat them with respect. They need to be respected as well. They are human beings made in the image of God. Uh, Children can get provoked when they're treated like they're not a major part of the family, like they're an inconvenience and a nuisance. And I know that some of you are probably saying, oh, I I wouldn't understand that. I grew up in a family like that. My brother and I were baggage in my mother's life. And I say that very openly because I learned that as a small child that we got in the way. And we would go days at a time without seeing mom because she was off doing something else. I learned to cook. I learned to take care of my brother. Don't give your kids the impression that they're in your way. They are, Psalm 127, a treasure, a beloved gift from the Lord. And you let them know that constantly. And you say, you are my treasure. I treasure you. And in this case, I treasure you so much, I'm going to discipline you and make you do what I want you to do. But I treasure you. And you let them know that all the time. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'll bet a nickel that some of you could raise your hand if I asked the question, how many of you wish your parents had treasured you just a little bit more? Probably some of you would say that. Don't say it if your parents are sitting here. You can frustrate them by not allowing them to express themselves in a safe environment. What do I mean by that? Sometimes kids act out frustration because they don't feel listened to. They're little human beings. They still need to be heard. They still have opinions. They're mostly wrong, but they still have opinions. And sometimes, especially with teenagers, let's jump up to teenagers, if you see a frustration, you know what the best thing you can do with your teenager is? You can say, all right, we're going out to lunch. It's on me. And for the next hour, you don't get in trouble for anything you say. Just tell me what's going on. Be honest with me. And you you just sort of call a timeout to the whole authoritarian structure thing and say, just tell me what's happening. And be willing to take the rebuke sometimes if your teenager sees that you are not parenting in a biblical manner. Sometimes they'll point it out. I had a family I was seeing in counseling once, and um, 
a whole slew of kids, and this dad was authoritarian, and he literally brought the stack of parenting books that he had read, brought his Bible, slapped it down, and was really there to show me what a great parent he was. Well, they were in my office because their family was totally chaotic, and nobody knew why. It was a big mystery. And so I started with the teenager, the oldest one. I said, what's going on in the family? And she hemmed and hawed. I knew she was lying to me. She was covering something, kept going down. And you could see dad just looking at his kids like this, like this intense, you better not say it. So I get to the three-year-old girl. So what's wrong with your family? And she goes, oh, I like my family, but my daddy drinks too much. Oh, okay, now we go. So I go back to the teenager. Teenager, what does your dad act like when he drinks? Oh, he's mean. He hits people. He does all kinds of things. Uh, At the end of that day, dad was in jail because it turns out he was physically abusive. He was a terrible person. If those kids had had a chance to be honest with mom and with dad, maybe they would have listened and something might have been different. Kids have to be allowed to be honest or you will provoke them. How about this one? You'll provoke your children to anger if you're always right. If you're always right, if you never apologize to your kids, that will get frustrating and you'll lose their respect really quickly. We'll talk more about that in a bit. I want to talk about the idea of provoking them by never recognizing when they do something right. Now, uh, Grant brought up a really great point last night, which is you never bribe your children. But you do reward your children. And let me tell you the difference. It's a subtle difference, but it's important. Here's a bribe. The bribe is, okay, kid, we're going into the grocery store. Please, I beg you, don't destroy the place, and I'll give you anything you want. Just let me get through this for once. That's a bribe. A reward, however, is different. Um, Deuteronomy 28. The Lord is speaking to Israel. And here's what he presents before them. He says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. And then he goes on. And says, but if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments, then all these curses will overtake you. And there's like pages of things that he says, this is what's going to happen to you. A reward for doing what you ask is not something you do every single time. You don't, every time you tell your child, go clean your room. Oh, here you go, a bag of candy. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is proper recognition of a right heart attitude demonstrated by right behavior. And here's how it goes in our family sometimes. Uh, We might have a particular project we're doing, and I'll sit down. I have a family meeting, big on family meetings. I'll say, here's everything we're going to be doing. We're cleaning the whole house. We're doing this, 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 and this. And you guys are going to do it. That's a foregone conclusion. But you have a choice of how you can do it. Either do it with a right, proper heart attitude, or do it with an attitude of rebellion, but it's going to get done. One, one way or the other. You stand before God. You determine how you want to do it. 
So if we get through this time, and I won't do this every time, but sometimes I will, and they demonstrate a particularly righteous attitude and, and really helpful and really just there and really pulled together as a family, then I'll say, you know what? I appreciate you guys, and I want to demonstrate my thankfulness to God through you, and let's do something fun. And it's, it's not, though, at the beginning, please do what I ask so that you can get this reward. It is a reward for a right heart attitude, for um, uh, an internal attitude of good, uh, goodness and a desire to do what's right. And just letting them know that you appreciate them. Appreciated kids tend to repeat what it is that they did to get the appreciation, right? And you don't do it for that reason. But the Lord shows us reward. Uh, we experience this in our Christian life now. Uh, James chapter 5 speaks of if someone is sick, um, pray for him. The context of that passage is someone who's sick because they're disobedient to the Lord. And the Lord is disciplining them. And he says, pray for them and the Lord will forgive. So if on one side the Lord does discipline your disobedience, what is the opposite, that he does reward obedience? He answers your prayers. He gives you blessing. He, he gives you good things. Because you have obeyed him, not to become part of the family, but because you are part of the family already. Here's a fourth way that we raise children in a way that is uh, pleasing to the Lord, and that is affection. Affection. Colossians 3.21, similar to Ephesians 6.4, says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We don't want discouraged children. We want encouraged children. And I think one of the ways parents frustrate or discourage their children is by withholding affection. Or the worst thing you can do, making your affection with them contingent on how good they've been. We don't do that. We, we separate those two. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? When the son returned, the one who had just done so many terrible things, who had really rebelled against his dad, what did his dad do? He ran and embraced him and kissed him. He was affectionate. I would encourage all of you, especially men, because this doesn't come as naturally to you, to make affection a normal, constant part of your home. In our house, we, we hold hands when we pray just simply as a way to demonstrate affection. We hug and kiss each other. Um, dads, uh, with, with your boys, you know, boys don't necessarily want a tender hug and kiss, but you can punch them in the back and you can, you can push them and you can wrestle with them. That, why do boys want to wrestle? They want to feel their dad around them. And they want, uh, you know, we have a game in our house we play. I mean, walking through my house, it's like a minefield because kids are behind doors and then they, you know, they poke and, and they do all kinds of things. We have these little games um, that uh, are very good for your abs because when you get punched in the stomach a lot. But the reason kids want that is they want to know you're there. They don't want to have to beg and ask for your affection. Be affectionate. Boys who don't receive much affection will tend to be distant and unloving, and girls who don't receive affection will go somewhere to find it. That's just the way it is. I'm going to be so affectionate with my little girl that she doesn't have time for anybody else to be affectionate with her. That's my goal. big part of affection, by the way, is just spending time together if... Your family has become defined by school and extracurricular activity and tutoring and music lessons. And if you're not spending time together, then your priorities are out of balance. You know what's great about sticking a, an appropriate DVD in the DVD player, popping the TV on for a little bit? Some people say, oh, don't do that. You'll go to hell. No, you won't. You know what's great about that? 
is just picking a kid to come hang with you. And in our, our family, we, we trade off back rubs and we do little things like that just to, just to touch and demonstrate affection. A newborn infant who is never touched will eventually either die or be completely uh, just messed up. And I've worked with thousands of foster kids, some of whom weren't touched. And it takes years and years for them to begin to work through that. Touch your kids. Show affection, especially dads. Here's a fifth area. Instruction. Proverbs 4.10 Hear, my son, accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. Proverbs twenty three twenty six. My son, give me your heart. Let me my let your eyes observe my ways. Other verses. Proverbs twenty three fifteen, twenty two six. Obviously, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Your children should know from birth that it's your duty and your privilege to instruct them. Just let them know that. Um, don't make them guess about the issues of life. You form their conscience by instructing them. And this happens both verbally, it also happens non-verbally. You, you teach them your values externally when they're little until they internalize those values for themselves. And that becomes who they are. You're teaching them uh, what the Word says about their behavior, what the Word says about sin, um, that, that the Lord is pleased when they do what is right, the Lord is displeased when they don't do what is right. I'll give you an example of, of teaching about an internal attitude without ever really having to use very many words. When Daniel and Michael, our two oldest sons, were six and four, they shared a room. Maybe they were seven and five, I don't remember. And uh, as many little boys, their room became a complete disaster area. We had tape around it and everything. And so uh, we said, one Saturday morning, time to clean the room. And they knew where to put things. They knew where it was. And so I sat them down and said, uh, after you clean your room, we're going to go do something fun, but not until it's clean. And so I said, all right, boys, on your mark, get set, go. Go clean your room. And they had this, they had this, yeah, and they stomp off to do it like that. And they're putting things away. Yeah. You know, they're looking at me, trying to make me feel guilty. This goes here. And they, they cleaned it all. They came out. Room's clean. I said, wow, okay, that's great. So I went back to their room, and I dumped out their toy box, dumped out everything from their closet, emptied all of their drawers onto the middle of the floor. I said, boys, go clean your room with a proper attitude. They stomp off. They do this and that. that and boy, they were really mad now. They didn't think I'd do it three times. Well, we did it six times. Took all morning. The last time I sat down, boys, when I say go, it's time to go clean your room. Now, what's your attitude going to be like? Good. <laughs> boys, on your mark, get set, go. Yes, sir. They go off and they, they do this. They're looking out and they're <laughs> this and that. Because I taught them, I don't just care that you have good behavior. I care that you have the right heart. And so it's up to you. We do training through practice. This works really well with little kids. Um, a little kid who likes to squirt toothpaste all over the one. I won't all over the place. I won't say which child that was. So what we did was, you know, obviously you're not skilled at this yet. So we're going to practice putting toothpaste on. So I bring home a brand new tube of toothpaste. Get the toothbrush now. Put the toothpaste on here. Doesn't do it right. Do it again until a hundred times later. Got the toothpaste on. I'm training them to do what I want and with the right attitude. Um, you train them. You can use organized instruction. Uh, read books to them. Have them reading books. Read books about the Lord. Read, read their Bibles. Um, use outside resources. Make sure they're in Sunday school. Look, if you're a family that 
and I'm just going to be blunt, if you can't seem to get your family into church more than twice a month, then you're, you're harming your children's future. You have a responsibility to have them being taught the word. Um, impromptu teaching moments. I'm going to talk about that extensively on Sunday. Now, if you're a parent, you're a teacher. That's just the way it is. You are, by definition, an instructor. Um, in our families, uh, I don't think we do any kids any favors by not teaching them. We teach them all the time. Um, if your kids grow up joking about how much you instructed them, you did the right thing. That means that you were doing what was right. Well, this is the part we wanted to get to. It took a while to get to it, but I want to talk for a few minutes about consequences. If you're not doing one, two, three, four, and five, and you're only doing number six consequences, then I would call you an abusive parent because you're not doing the other stuff that's the foundation, uh, the relational foundation of consequences. There are three times to discipline your children. Open rebellion when they say no. And by the way, they can say no without using words. You Look up here real, real carefully. Look at my eyes. Here's one way kids say no. Right? You discipline that. They may as well have said no. They demonstrated their external, their internal attitude. Second time you discipline disobeying instructions or a rule, that's more subtle rebellion. She didn't say no, but I said sit in that chair until I come get you, and the moment I turned my back, she took off. That's still no, just without words. And then the third consequence, third time you discipline, is when there's an internal attitude problem. And we, that is hypocrisy. You're obeying, but with an attitude, having a sharp tongue. Dear, you need to go take care of this. Okay, mom. No, you discipline that. You may as well have said no, because you're being a rebel internally. Proverbs 19.18, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. If you don't discipline your kids... They're going to die. It's that simple. I've seen that, I've seen that worked out very literally. Proverbs twenty nine seventeen. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. There's joy to the parent with a disciplined child. Um, the consequences that we give aren't always physical consequences. They are um, they're natural consequences. You know, uh, Daniel used to love to jump off of our coffee table. And when he was two years old, he jumped off of everything, and I would try to stop him. Finally, the natural consequence is I just didn't catch him this time. And he had a bloody nose, bled all over the carpet, and never jumped off the coffee table again. Um, we give him consequences. So I do want to focus, though, on the physical consequences. And this is important. Uh, you have to understand developmentally that the smaller the child, the faster the consequences have to come. With a seven-month-old who's crawling around and reaching for your grandmother's vase... You say no, and if the child doesn't comply, then you give a physical discipline, either a swat on the bottom that's hard with a, with a diaper or maybe a tap on the hand that, that is sharp enough for them to understand that, and it has to be right then. But children are out of sight, out of mind. If you, with a seven-month-old, three minutes later say, now, you remember when you reached for my grandmother's vase? Well, i got to punish you now. They're all, what? That was like eight years ago. you got to do it quickly. The church in America has bought the lie the lie of the devil that physical consequences is somehow abusive. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what research says. Research says that you'll make children who are angry. You want to make children who are angry? Never discipline them. Then you'll make angry kids who hate you eventually. Scripture says the rod and reproof give wisdom, but the child left to himself brings shame to his mother. 
Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he won't die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, from the grave. Proverbs 23 and the classic Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The world jokes about that verse. Oh, yeah, spare the rod, spoil the child. I'm not going to joke about scripture. This is God's word. Yeah, spare the rod, send the child to hell. That's what scripture says. And this is all over the place. It's not just one isolated verse. Now, here's, here's a little worldly, in the best sense of that word, verification I can give you. I've had uh, the opportunity to talk to literally hundreds and hundreds of children who were physically abused, children who have been punched in the face by their adult dads. I've talked to one child who was locked in a closet for seven months. I've talked to children who have been burned, who have had their hands. I, I know a child who has the, the rings of a, an electric stove on his hand where his mother put his hand on there when he would disobey, both hands, and he carries those with him. I've talked to these children, and I've asked hundreds of them a question. Do you know the difference between abuse and spanking? And even small children, you know what they say 100% of the time? I never had a negative response. Abuse is wrong. Spanking is when I disobey. They know the difference, and they know the heart of the parent that's doing it because it's not done in anger. They don't like it, but they understand it's okay. I've never had... Even a physically abused child ever say spanking is wrong. It's categorically immoral. They don't say that. They understand instinctively. And I'm going to give you a reason why in a minute. How did God discipline? God disciplined with patience followed by extreme consequences. Things like death and disease and 40-year-long probation periods. How about this one? 1 Corinthians 11, the church in Corinth was taking the Lord's Supper without confessing sin to the Lord, without dealing with holiness issues in their lives. What was God doing? He was killing some of them. I mean, man, that's severe discipline. But that's what the Lord models for us, discipline in a fairly severe manner now when they're little so that your children are not crushing your hearts when they're 17. That's your choice. If you want happy kids... You give them discipline. Either discipline them now or God will discipline them later. And I tell my kids this. I say, you can continue to rebel against me and eventually you'll turn 18 and I'll just send you someplace. But then God's discipline will be infinitely more severe. Listen to me now so that the Lord can be a blessing in your life. Well, I know we're running a little short on time, but this is important. I want to go through God's pattern of discipline. God's pattern of discipline, I can't remember if this is in the handout or not. There's four steps. The first one is state the standard and give a choice. The second pattern, second step is if rebellion occurs, a decision to disobey, obvious unrepentance, then the painful consequences happen at that point. If repentance occurs, then the relationship is restored. If rebellion continues, step four, painful consequences happen again. Let me give you two examples of how this works. Uh, first example, when Daniel was little bitty and we moved him out of his crib because he was like nine feet long when he was 12 months old, um, we had to put him in, in a little bed. So what we did so that he wouldn't fall off is we just put his crib mattress on the floor. But we told him, step one, we set the standard. Do not get out of bed or daddy will come in and spank you. Well, I had a secret weapon because underneath his door was a gap about this big. And so when we started this, I said, okay, I'm ready. 
secret agent Steve Swartz is here. And I laid down underneath, and I looked underneath, and I see his little feet going. Step one, I given him the standard. I gave him one more chance. I said, Daniel, get back in bed. And he's looking around going, where is this? And, and he would run over and get in bed. And I'd keep looking, and his little feet, I'd have my hand on the doorknob ready to go because he's just two. And as soon as he gets out of bed, boom, I'm in there. He's spanked in like one second. I said, Daniel, the standard is stay in bed. I go back, look under the door. We did this for days and days. Then what would happen is, in part of the rebellion, still in step one and two, I would see him get out of bed, and then I'd see his little eyeballs come under the, uh, look under the door, and then he'd run back and get in bed. State the standard, give a choice. If he rebels, you punish him. If he repents, which means changes the behavior, then the relationship is restored and everything is okay. Here's another example. Uh, I don't know about you, but I just never wanted to be the guy who brought the crazy children into restaurants. We just never wanted to be the ones that made everybody else leave, complained to the manager, and that sort of thing. Maybe it was personal pride, I don't know. But uh, in any case, we would have meetings with our kids. We're going to a restaurant, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to do, and we give them the expectations, and um, because in our society, uh, spanking kids in some places is literally illegal, uh, but we hold the God's law, not rather the man's, um, we had to have a code. And we had a spanking implement that we used, and it was small enough to fit into Sylvia's purse, and we named it. We named it Mr. Sad. Nobody else knew what Mr. Sad was, but our kids sure knew what Mr. Sad was. So we're outside the restaurant, kids. We're going in. Here's what you're going to do. And so if they started to get a little bit out of sorts, I'd say, Michael, do we need to visit Mr. Sad? No! Because they knew what that was. People around us, who's Mr. Sad? Somebody even asked me once, who's Mr. Sad? Oh, he's a very good friend of the family. Uh, He's helped tremendously. You state the standard. If rebellion occurs, you give the punishment. If repentance occurs, the relationship is restored. And by the way, you can see in a child's face when I administer a spanking, the first thing I do is I turn them around and I ask them, are you sorry? And I look in their face. And kids, they're lousy liars when they're little. They grow into it. But you can see, yeah, I'm sorry. When they do that, they didn't repent. What do you do? You turn them around and do it again. And sometimes with particular children, I won't name any names, um, sometimes that's a long process. Sometimes you have to give their little rear ends a break. You know, let that kind of heat go down and come back and say, how are you feeling? Are you sorry yet? Because if you don't punish them to the point of true internal repentance, you just made them mad is all you did. You're there to break their little wills and to make them uh, decide to have a correct internal attitude. And I know that's hard and that's painful. Oh, you're so mean. Look, if you don't do it when they're little, Somebody else is going to do it. Law enforcement is going to do it. God is going to do it. You're going to have tears upon pain, upon anguish, because your children have a lousy internal attitude. You break it when they're little tiny, when a little swat from your hand will do it, a little swat from uh, those things that you use to, to frost cakes. Those are glorious. They, one little one is all you need. Because when they're little and they respond... They grow into obedient children. And you know what happens? We started a new game. The new game with us, and this wasn't our 
exclusive parenting method, but our, our game was when we go out in public, I told the kids, okay, you're starting to get this. You're starting to understand. So we're going to play a little game. If anybody else notices how well you're behaving and they come say something, we'll give you a quarter just for fun. It wasn't our prime method. It was just a game we played. And so we go into a restaurant, and uh, some little old lady would come up and say, oh, your children are so well-behaved, and the kids are all, <laughs> and they're, they're like ready to go. And then Michael, who's our financial whiz, he, he started figuring inflation. Dad, when can we move up to 50 cents? I, you just moved to zero. You know why? Because what started out as an external standard now became internalized. And our little kids would say, Dad, look at those kids over there. Okay, and we struggle with their self-righteousness, and we go through that. But they began to understand that other kids disobeying was wrong. Because we had worked with them and worked with them and trained them and taken that time. If you think that punishing your children physically is... If you think it's abusive, can I show you from Scripture that it's not? In fact, you are loving them so intently. A child who is sinning does not feel good about it. Sin never feels good in the long term, but they're not capable of dealing with that sin. They're not capable of dealing with the guilt, and so the sin pattern continues. Listen to this from Proverbs 20, verse 30. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. A child who is in sin and you discipline that sin to the point of brokenness and repentance for that sin, they feel better. They feel relief because you haven't let them wallow in their own guilt and wallow in their own sin. And by the way, what happens when you take a child? You ever seen this? No, no, don't do that. Pop. What do they do? They just get mad. It has to be something that gets their attention. I call it putting them in orbit for 30 seconds. They need to know that the, um, the Board of Education is going to be applied to the seat of learning and that it's going to hurt because blows that wound cleanse away evil, not blows that irritate. You're not there to irritate them. You're there to give a loving stroke, a loving wound. I want to just finish up with this. I think a big mistake that parents make is waiting for big issues to discipline. You issue the big threats. Uh, Grant talked about this last night, the, the threatening parent. And, and what happens is parents end up threatening things that they can't ever possibly follow through on. All right, we're going to Disneyland next week. No way are you going if you don't stop this. Well, are you really going to leave your seven-year-old behind while you take all the others? No, that's not going to happen. Or you get to the point, um, you're grounded for a week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you're grounded for two weeks now. Well, forget you. You're grounded for a month now. And 30 seconds later, they have nothing left. There are no clothes. You've taken everything they own away. And you're going, what just happened? You fired all your bullets. You have nothing left. And when you take everything away from a kid and he's standing there in his underwear with nothing, and he goes, I'm still not going to do what you say, what do you do then? You're out of ammo. You have to give him everything back and start over. What you do is you discipline the little things so that the big things never come up. I'll give you a few examples. The Lord did this. God gave manna to Israel, bread from heaven, and he gave him a standard. In Exodus 16, he said, I'm about to rain bread from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, and I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. They're not to try to keep it until the next day. But some people went out and they got a bunch. They thought, we'll save it up. So what did he do? 
God made it breed worms so that it would stink. He disciplined these little things to say, my standard is the same for gathering bread as it is for huge crimes. It is the standard of holiness. Here's another one. If you tell your child to sit quietly in a chair for whatever reason, or to do, to do anything other than sitting in that chair is breaking your standard, then you discipline that thing. And, and go after it. Don't wait until you're, you're in a situation where you desperately need them to obey. You pull out a chair on a Thursday night and say, guess what, Johnny? We're going to have sit-in chair practice just for fun. And you can make it fun, but you teach them to obey. One of the greatest things you can do is teach your children to sit quietly. They can do it. People say, oh, they, they can't do it. They're too little. Yes, they can. I promise you they can. They just have to be trained to do it. And what it does is it teaches them great patience. And so that when you're going to sit in the doctor's office for two hours, your kids aren't going nuts. They know how to sit, and they can read quietly, or they can just sit. I ask my kids, what are you thinking about? Well, we're just waiting. Kids today are not taught to be quiet. They're given 5,000 pounds of electronics to keep them occupied. They need to be taught to sit. Another example of teaching them little things. The way your child speaks to you and to others is a behavior. It is a behavior. You tell your teenage daughter, um, I want you to stop wearing uh, that particular style of clothing because it's disrespectful, it's inappropriate. And she goes, okay, mom, man. She walks off and slams her door. What did she just do? Did she really obey you? No. You pull her back and you say, we're going to work through this. I don't care how long it takes until you respond to me in a way that is appropriate because that's a rebellious response. Teach them when they're little tiny to do that and you won't deal with it when they're teenagers. When they're teenagers, you can just give them a warning and they understand. They remember when they were little. True story. Uh, Husband and wife I've seen in counseling, significant numbers of problems, but... um, major problem they had, and they claimed to be Christians, was that the wife had tantrums every time anything didn't go her way. She had big, giant fits, yelling, screaming. Anytime her husband did something that upset her, she was manipulative, she was overly emotional, generally just making everyone around her walk around on eggshells because they were nervous that if things don't go mom's way, everybody's going to pay. And finally, this husband was just frustrated, and he turned to her and he said, you know, I wish your daddy had the guts to spank you because now it's too late. You can't spank your own wife. You can't. She's not a child anymore. She's an adult acting like a child because she was not disciplined when she was young. And now even as a professing believer, she has trouble with self-control and now the Lord has to discipline her, which is infinitely more severe. Well, what do you do with all this? I know we've done a lot of information today. Um, I think really the main thing you need to do is have a strategy, and and you have to understand the developmental stage of your children. If they're little bitty and they're unreasonable, you don't use reason with them. And if they're 15, you don't say, okay, the Bible says I have to spank you. Now, if you spank a 15-year-old, he's going to punch you in the nose and put you in a headlock. You have to reason with them. They have reason. You have to help them with how to um, make good decisions. And so you have to have a plan. Um, it doesn't just happen passively. You're not going to leave here and suddenly be different. You have to make a plan, have a, uh, a, a pattern that works. And I really enjoyed what Grant said about being like-minded. Uh, parents, you've got to have this plan. You're together all the time. 
Um, you don't ever contradict each other uh, in front of the kids. Well, that's a lot of stuff, but I, I would encourage you to get through Proverbs. And if you don't have the book Proverbs uh, for parenting, get the book anyway if you don't happen to be the winner uh, this morning. And, um, uh, and then we will you know, see your kids start to change. I know we're running a little late. I want to take two or three minutes, though, just for any questions because people always have questions about this sort of thing. So throw out some questions and, and some ideas. Helping teenagers make good decisions, that sort of thing. Um, helping teenagers make good decisions, that's a great question. What you have to do is walk them through the process of wisdom. And you sit down with them and say, okay, so you want to do A, which I think is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my whole life, but you want to do A. I want you to do B, which is the opposite, which is wisdom. What you do is you ask them to walk through their logic. And if they claim to be believers, you say, show me from Scripture why, why doing A is the right thing to do. And if they make a really good case, you have a choice. You can, you can force them to do B still, or you can say, okay, I'm going to let you do A. I think it's going to crash and burn. I think that you're going to come back groveling, and I'm going to say I told you so. But I'm going to let you do it. But you walk them through the process. Make them think about why they're doing it. And sometimes they'll come to their own conclusions. They'll go, well, I think that I, 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 this, you're right. This is really dumb. And that probably won't happen the first time. After, after they get, make their silly arguments a few times, it will. But you have to walk them through wisdom and let them, let them go through that decision-making process, part of the training process. Good question. Thank you. Any other questions? All right. We're running a little bit late, so I'm just going to pray. If that's all right. Do we have any announcements? You have announcements? He has announcements. All right. Grant has announcements. Well, I first want to just give a little disclaimer um, from what Steve said. He didn't say go home and just spank your kids and that will solve everything. That is certainly not what you should walk away from here with. That's not the only tool. These principles will only work if you first accompany them with everything else that's being said, by your righteous behavior, by searching scriptures, um, all those things you said, by prayer, limits that you're going to be putting, understanding, affections, instructions, all those things first. The discipline process is such a small part of this, but it is an important key element of it. And thank you, Steve, for, for sharing that. A lot of people, a lot of churches even don't, uh, don't speak out at this level. I love what he said. Teach them when they're little, and you won't have to deal with it when they're older. That is so true, and I know Kathy and I can attest to that. That uh, really is that way. Break for about 15 minutes. We have snacks out there. Use the restroom. Get yourself relaxed a little bit. Um, also, if you'd like to pay a few bucks for the babysitting, for the snacks, for the materials, just slip some money in the box, offering box right there by the back door. We'd appreciate that. And, yes, uh, let me just have a word of prayer, and we'll be back here in 15, 20 minutes. God, thank you for your word that does give us so much instructions and righteousness and direction and in ways that we can honor you and glorify you, we look forward to that next generation praising your name and generations and generations past that, if you so do, Terry. In the meantime, God, may we uh, rejoice in the, the youth that we have, in the children that we have, and may we seriously understand our roles and commitments through the rest of our lives to influence our children especially, and even others, so that your name can get glory. In your name we pray, amen.